I, I want you to think for a moment about the fall of the year here in New Brunswick. Something happens every season, year in, year out, always the same. What is it? Uh, you're probably thinking of a few things. But what I'm thinking of is the leaves on the trees, and they change. They turn, they transform from a, a near uniform color of green, and they begin to take on every shade and hue of orange and red and yellow that you could imagine. God paints the hills and he, he runs His brush through the valleys and the whole countryside is transformed into fiery waves of color. And it's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, some of you, you just hearing about it, you think, oh yes, I, I remember I was driving along one day and I saw it and it was incredible. Well, some people travel thousands of miles, even across oceans, just to see it. Just to see the leaves that change. They spend their days taking pictures. They spend a lot of money to do it. And whether they thank Him or not, they are in awe of God's handiwork. And yet, for us who see it year after year after year, and who live, really live in the midst of it, we can drive along some of the most scenic routes without ever even a thought to how incredible it is what God has done. It's the same with people who, who live under the Rocky Mountains. Maybe some of you have, have, have lived there. And every now and then you look up and you see them and you think, wow, that's, that's an incredible thing that God has done crafting these mountains. But by and large, and certainly given enough time, they just, they just become a backdrop to the day-to-day -day mundane course of life, don't they? Why? Why does that happen? Do the leaves lose their beauty? Or do the mountains lose their majesty? No. Of course they don't. But we lose our interest. Because of some flaw in us, to be sure, we lose the ability to appreciate and to marvel. And over time, we become so so accustomed to incredible things that they just don't impress us anymore. They, they become common and familiarity with them. It may not breed contempt, but it certainly breeds apathy. Well, it's one thing to become apathetic to the marvels of creation, to become blind to the beauty of God's handiwork. It's something else altogether and far worse for the glorious truths that God gives us in His Word to become common and to lose their glory. We think because we've heard something a thousand times, now maybe we've not even heard it, it's just crossed our ears. It's sometimes the way that people read the Bible, and, and maybe you can relate to this. You, you read the Bible, but you haven't actually read the Bible. You've just looked at marks on the page. But we become familiar with something. And because we can name a particular doctrine, we think we've got it figured out. We're familiar with it. We, we know exactly what that means, we think. Uh, usually it's a total opposite. And we don't understand what's being said at all. And we've just heard it so many times. We've grown numb to it. We hear it. I know what that is. Put it on the back. And it doesn't, it doesn't get into the mind and into the heart at all. Words that once confounded the greatest scholars of the day they land at our feet with a dull thud. And few phrases have suffered more from this than five words found in John chapter 3, verse 7. You 
must be born again. You must be born again. Those are the very words of God spoken by Christ. And this morning, we're going to try to visit them anew and take this truth that's become so common. Everybody thinks they know what it means to be born again. We're going to try to at least make an attempt to reestablish some of its proper glory. Our text this morning will be John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Well, let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help us to see this passage that many of us are so familiar with, to see it anew to see it appropriately, that the familiarity would be stripped away and we would come to a new appreciation of what it means, Lord, of what you were trying to teach Nicodemus, Lord. I pray that you would teach it to us this morning what it means to be born again. And Lord, I pray for those here who are born again. They know you. They have entered the kingdom. They walk with you. I pray that this would be a morning of of a strengthening of their faith, of a strengthening of their assurance. Lord, I pray for those who are not born again, and they know it. They do not know You. They do not profess to know You. I pray this morning, Lord, that You would give them eyes to see and that they would be born again. And Lord, I want to pray especially for those who may think they are born again and think they are walking with You, but God, they have never had their eyes opened or their hearts made new. They haven't entered the kingdom and they are, like so many, deceived. And the words born again have become familiar to them, but they don't know what they mean. I pray especially for those people, Lord, that You would open their eyes to see Lord, they're not right with You. But they can be. And I pray they would be today. Lord, help me to preach. Make up for the great weakness in me. Lord, if You don't 
help me. If you don't work in this place, everything I say will just be words. And words have no power. But Lord, You make words effective to change the hearts of people. And so Lord, we ask that You would work today. We don't trust in ourselves. I don't trust in myself. But You are a great and glorious God and I do trust in You. And I pray, Lord, that You would do Your work and have Your way in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, this passage, first and foremost, it's a conversation, right? And if you want to understand a conversation, you have to know who the participants are. One of them is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler of heaven and earth. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, King of kings, Lord of lords, God incarnate, veiled in flesh. Why do you say it that way? Because that's one of the things we're prone to forget. Just remember exactly who it is Nicodemus is speaking to. This is God he is speaking to. And the other in the conversation, of course, is Nicodemus. He's a high-born Jewish man, to be sure. His name literally means... To translate it into English, it would mean the conqueror of the people. Now you have to come from a certain pedigree to to name your child the conqueror of the people. But what's more, he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees were the religious experts of that day. Not only did they believe in the authority of the Bible, most of them, if not all of them, they would have had the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, completely committed to memory. They studied continually. They meditated constantly. But but what's more important to understanding what's going on in this passage is that above all, the Pharisees, the goal of their studying, the goal of their lives was to see the Messiah and His kingdom come. In fact, some rabbinic literature, they wrote in it, if a Pharisee kept the law perfectly for one day, it would be so endearing and so meritorious in the sight of God, it would compel him to send Messiah. So the Messiah was the great hope and focus of the Pharisees, which makes their rejection of him all the more unbelievable. But they didn't all reject him. Nicodemus didn't reject him. And given his interest in the Messiah, it should surprise nobody that Nicodemus sought Jesus out. He, he recognized the miracles. That's what he says, right? No one could do what you were doing unless God is with him. So that sets him apart from the rest of the Pharisees who say, you're doing what you're doing by the power of Beelzebub. Not Nicodemus. So at the very least, Nicodemus doesn't think Jesus is a false teacher. He recognizes God is with this man. And so he determines to see him. And he comes at night. And much has been made about his coming at night, all of it's speculation. All we know for sure is it was nighttime when they met, but he, he probably came at night because he belonged to a group that hated and violently opposed Jesus and he didn't want to expose himself to risk. And now the stage is set. We have the Lord of glory. And Nicodemus, an accomplished religious scholar 
who is eagerly awaiting the kingdom, who recognizes God is with Jesus. He knows it from the miracles. And the reason he came was to discuss the coming kingdom of God. Now, how do we know that? We know that Nicodemus came to discuss the kingdom because Jesus tells him that's why he came. Verse 3, Very truly or truly truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus said nothing about the kingdom of God to Jesus. He didn't even ask any questions, did he? All he said was, you are from God because and I know this because of what you do. But again, remember who he's speaking to. It's the all-knowing Lord Jesus. And the moment Nicodemus approaches him, Jesus knows why Nicodemus is there. And so this is, this is not just a passing statement on the Lord's omniscience, that he knows all things. No, as often is the case in John's Gospel, there's a, a deeper layer here underneath what's on the surface. And what we don't have here is it's not merely a display of the Lord's all-knowing Omniscience. He knows all things, but we have the depth of it. And the depth of it is this. Jesus knows Nicodemus' heart. He reads his heart and not his lips. It's a reminder to us of exactly who it is we're dealing here, dealing with here. Who exactly it is who says you must be born again. He knows the heart. And it shocks and, and rivets Nicodemus. I mean, it would do the same to you. Imagine you came to ask someone a question and you said, Hi, how are you? And before you even asked the question, they started answering it. You'd be surprised. Nicodemus is surprised. Nicodemus, who was eagerly awaiting the kingdom of God to come, and he, he wasn't only anticipating it, the Pharisees were obsessed with it. The whole Jewish world at this point in history was rallied against the Romans who occupied Judea and Jerusalem, and they were looking forward to the promised king who would establish his throne in Zion, crush all of his enemies, drive out the Romans, and establish an everlasting Jewish kingdom. That's the expectation. So you can only imagine the reaction of poor Nicodemus when he hears the words, no one can see this kingdom, the kingdom of God, unless he is born again. So this man visiting Jesus spent his entire life awaiting the kingdom of God, and here on the verge of its inauguration, he is told, you can't see it unless something happens to you. You can't see this kingdom unless you are born again. And Nicodemus kind of understands what's been said, and it bothers him. I mean, this is a smart man. He's got a lot of the Bible memorized, dedicated his life to the study of Scripture. And when he hears this, he doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. I mean, he should know, but he doesn't. This is a great religious scholar. He's confused. We aren't even surprised. We want to react and say, well, yeah, Nicodemus, you know what it means. I know what it means. But it's really like the leaves that fall. You, you hear it a thousand times, and because you hear the words born again so much, you, you think you've got it all figured out. We've got a good name for it. 
You don't blink an eye or have a second thought about this pride-shattering, unbelievable utterance of Christ. I mean, Nicodemus at least had the good sense to be surprised. How can this be? This sounds impossible. How can you be born when you're old? How can you go into the womb again and be born? Now, some think maybe he's being disrespectful here. I mean, maybe we don't know the tone that he said it with, but I think he does want an answer. I mean, he's saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? Neither I nor anybody else of my companions who study this book have ever heard something like this before. You must be born again to see the kingdom. And so he wants Jesus to explain it to him. I mean, you thought about that. How in the world is somebody born twice? What does it mean? Well, Jesus answers. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Well, now we're getting somewhere, aren't we? Someone born again, which is not only how someone sees the kingdom, you can't see it unless this happens, but enters the kingdom, no one can enter the kingdom unless this happens to them, are born of water and Spirit. Well, first, what does it mean to enter the kingdom? Some people think the kingdom of God is exclusively a a future place where God will rule. No, that's not it. Jesus tells us throughout the Gospels, the kingdom is at hand. He tells us elsewhere, it's in your midst. The kingdom is near. And so the church has historically always believed that the church is the kingdom of God. It's where God is exercising and exerting His rule today. And God sovereignly exercises His rule through and in the church. And so we, along with every other gospel-believing body of believers, constitute the kingdom of God. kingdom is made up of those who believe and those who are redeemed. You could say it this way. Everyone who is in the kingdom is saved. Everyone who is inside the kingdom belongs to God and is being saved. Everyone outside does not belong to God and is headed towards destruction. So you must be in the kingdom or you're lost. So being born again is really important, isn't it? You must be born again or you do not enter the kingdom. And if you do not enter the kingdom, you are condemned. And not only can you not enter the kingdom, remember verse 3, you can't even see the kingdom. You're blind to it. It could be inches in front. Think about the implication of what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of God can be inches in front of your face, and unless you're born again, you cannot see a thing. I mean, it's no wonder Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again. I mean, apart from it, not only can you not be saved, you cannot even see the way to be saved. You cannot see anything about Christianity at all. That's the seriousness of what this conversation is about. But we still don't know what it means to be born again. The latter half of the verse begins the explanation. They are born of water and the Spirit. Well, water is easy to understand. It's not fleshly birth. And it's not baptism. All throughout the Old Testament, water is symbolic of cleansing. 
You know, they washed the articles in the temple to purify them. They sprinkled water on the people to purify them. If you were sick, once you recovered, you would take a bath or go to the priests and be purified by water. So to be washed with water, that's not a hard concept to grasp, especially for Nicodemus who knows the Old Testament forwards and backwards. You must be made clean. You must be born of water, passed through the water. You have to be purified. So being born uh, of the water means forgiven, sins cleansed. Being born of the Spirit is where we run into maybe some difficulty, but the comparison in verse 6 helps. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Here's more of the birth language. This is going to tell us something about what being born in the Spirit means. It's the same as being born again. When a child is born, they come from parents who are made of flesh. Right? That's obvious. All of you are familiar with that. Many of you have recently experienced it. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So being born of the Spirit means to have a spiritual birth that does not originate in the flesh, nor is it from the flesh, but it is from the Spirit of God. You remember two chapters earlier? John chapter 1, 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Verse 13 who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I hope you start to see what this means. Just because you exist doesn't mean you're spiritually alive. Everyone is born, yes, in the flesh, but they're spiritually dead. Ephesians tells us plainly, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Living body, spiritual corpse. Everybody starts out this way. And you can go your whole life and grow old and die in the flesh and never have your spirit made alive. The Spirit of God must give birth to His, the spirit of His children. Ephesians 2.10, Genesis 2.17. When the Spirit breathes into them, then they become a living being makes it clear we are spiritually dead and and so Jesus says something must act upon us to make us spiritually alive if we ever hope to see or enter the kingdom you want to see the kingdom you want to enter it something has to happen to you this is not insignificant Jesus is telling us Something has to happen to you. That's something called being born again before, not after, before you can even see the kingdom of God, the way of salvation, or anything uh, in that regard. You, You can't perceive how to be saved. Can't perceive it. Can't see it as valuable at all until you are born again. Verses 7 or 8 are probably the most difficult in this passage. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. 
The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So what does being born in the, born again, born of the Spirit, and the wind, what do they all have in common? Because they're all being connected here, aren't they? The wind blows wherever it pleases. The wind does what it wants. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be channeled like water or put into a bucket. It cannot be coerced. It has no source point we can look at and say, this is where the wind comes from, and it has no destination to where it's going, or at least we don't know what destination it has. We can say the direction, but not the destination. And Jesus is saying, you cannot control or understand the ways of the wind, but you can hear its sound. When you looked outside the last couple of weeks, and you saw trees swaying in the storm, or flags flapping on their poles, what exactly did you see? I saw the wind. You didn't see the wind. You can't see the wind. It's invisible. But the effects of the wind are unmistakable. They are so unmistakable that when you see them, you immediately know the wind is at work. Well, in the very same way, Jesus is telling us the Spirit cannot be seen, cannot be measured, but its effects are obvious. When the Spirit comes and makes someone born again, the results are unmistakable and undeniable. And what are the results? Well, it's the Spirit of God who is at work, right? And so I think it's safe to say the results of the Spirit at work would be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's a good starting point. Someone who is born of the Spirit will begin to manifest these things because the Spirit is in them, bringing them to fruition. Are there any others? 1 Peter 2.2 2, A hungering for the Word of God. A repentance and a turning from sin. A genuine faith. I mean, when the Spirit comes, the result is the birth of a new creature. 1 Corinthians 5.17 You are new creatures. Being born again means being made new. It means you are not what you once were. I mean, how could you be? Think about what we're talking about here. The very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters in creation bringing to pass what the Lord spoke. It's using that same creative power on you when you're born again. Do you honestly believe that the Spirit can do this work in you and nothing change about your life? And you're exactly the way you were before. That is impossible. It does not happen that way. Uh, maybe you've heard the example before. I, I heard a Paul Washer once using the example of a logging truck. He said, imagine I was on my way somewhere to preach, on my way here to preach uh, this morning, and I was late. And when I arrived, I apologized. I said, I'm sorry, I'm late. 
I got a flat tire on the highway and I had to get out and change the wheel. And when I get out, the lug nut fell away from me and it rolled out into the street. And so I went and I picked up the lug nut. When I stood up, there was a, a 60 ton logging truck going 60 miles an hour and it drove me over. And that's why I'm late. Doesn't take a genius to know that story. It doesn't line up. It is impossible. It is impossible to be hit by a logging truck and not be permanently changed. It's even more absurd to think that you can be made alive and indwelled by the Spirit of God and be born again and not be permanently changed. It just is not possible. God comes in and when He does, He is going to make a difference. If there's no difference, if there is no difference, He's not there. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you should know all this. You should know this, He tells him. How? How should He know this? Well, because it's in the Old Testament. It's in the book that He's so diligently studied. God said the same thing 600 years ago to Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, just, just look at verse 25. This is God speaking about what He's going to do in the future. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Water makes you clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and all of your idols. So there's born of water. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit, born of the Spirit, within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you, some translations, make you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful to observe My ordinances. God says He's going to do that. That sounds a lot like the new birth, doesn't it? So what does God do? He makes them clean. But He doesn't just make them clean. There is a, a description here of someone who is born of the Spirit. You want to know what they look like? Here it is. They have a new heart. They have a new spirit. They have a heart of flesh. Now, now that doesn't mean, as sometimes it's used in the New Testament, an evil heart. It means a responsive heart. A stone doesn't respond to things. It's like a statue. Yeah, it looks like a man. Statue of, you know, you think of the statue of David. It looks like a man, but it's not going to respond. It can't have a conversation. But a heart of flesh, flesh responds to stimuli. A heart of flesh responds and is not insensitive to the things of God means a responsive heart. The hearts won't be insensitive like stone. They will be warm and they will be alive. They will, they will respond when God pricks their conscience. And God says He will cause them to walk in His ways. God will cause them to walk in His ways and make them careful to keep what He has commanded them. Put it another way. They want to obey God, and they do obey God, and the reason is because they are born of the Spirit, 
and being born of the Spirit of God, they become His children. And being His children, God ensures they both want to keep and do His laws. They want to do it, and God causes them to do it. God causes them to do it by making them want to do it. That's why He puts the new heart in. I mean, just think. Just think about this for a second. God commands fathers to discipline and train their children, doesn't He? All through the book of Proverbs, in the Psalms, in Deuteronomy, and elsewhere, fathers are commanded to train, instruct, and discipline their child so they will not die, but so that they will grow up into righteousness. This is what God requires of earthly fathers. And if they don't do it, they are called wicked fathers. Now, do you honestly believe that if you are God's son or daughter, He would fail to do for you what He commands under threat of punishment earthly fathers to do? Or do you think, well, this is God. It's different. Be honest with yourself. How do you think of God's relationship to you as His child? Even though God commands earthly fathers according to the flesh to discipline and train their children, when it comes to Him, He's just going to let His children run wild and do whatever they want with no concern of their righteousness or their godliness or their Christian character. You think God will do that? Absolutely not. And if you think so, if you think that's how God treats His children, you don't know who God is and you don't know what it means to be a father. God is not a a father who shrugs off his responsibilities. When you become a child of God, God himself takes personal responsibility for your personal holiness. I heard someone once tell me, because of our indomitable and supreme free will, which is, is such a supreme virtue that even God himself cannot infringe upon it, God will never interfere with your life. I've heard that before. God will never interfere. It's entirely up to you to decide whether to obey Him or not. I don't know what theological umbrella you would put that under except the heresy one. Because that's that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, that's what the devil says. You remember Genesis 3? The great goal of life, he convinces Eve and Adam, is freedom. And the only way you can ever be free is through absolute, unhindered autonomy, totally out from the shackles of the, of the, uh, of the commands of God. God does not allow His children to run wild. I mean, what would you think of an earthly parent who did that? They're my child, and because I, I respect their uh, self-rule and autonomy so much and I just let them do whatever they want and I don't instruct them at all. Good father, bad father. Good mother or bad mother. Is that a good parent or a bad parent? I don't need to ask because you know. So don't make God out to be a bad parent with your theology. In Hebrews 12, we read, God disciplines those He loves. And if you're not disciplined, you don't belong to Him. You do not share or have that special saving love upon you. God is a good parent. He's not a bad father. 
And everyone he gives birth to, go and read Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 1 through, I think it's 1 through 10. Everyone God gives birth to by his spirit, he exercises fatherly authority over them to restrain them, to train them, to change their desires, to grow them in godliness, and yes, even punish them to discipline them. But to be born again means to be born of God and to be a child of God with God as your heavenly Father. Well, here we are. It's the end of the passage. And if you've been following what I've been saying so far, you might be getting a little bit uneasy because this new birth language can be troubling to a people who are used to being the be-all, end-all, determinative factor of their lives. Maybe you've realized something at this point. Unless you've been born again, you cannot be saved. And here's the troubling part. You cannot make it happen. That's what the new birth does. It brings you face to face with your helplessness and your hopelessness. I mean, what's it compared to? It's compared to your fleshly birth. And just like you had no say in that, right? you didn't discuss with your parents, I think I want to be born at such and such a day, uh, and I think this would be a good time for it, and uh, maybe you should you know, give birth to me now. doesn't work that way. You had no input in your spirit and your earthly birth. And in the same way, God is the one who has the only say in your spiritual birth. Peter leaves no room to argue this point. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. And He has to have done it because before that you couldn't even see or perceive anything regarding His kingdom. Well, how should we respond to this? At this point, there's only one real question to be asked. How do I know I have been born again? Right? You, you can't make it happen, but like the wind blowing, you can recognize if it did happen to you. And you need to answer this question because, look, there are, there are a lot of... In a room this size, just statistically speaking, there are some of you who think you're born again but you're not. It's just a fact. And listen, it's a whole lot better to get that figured out now and get things right than to go your whole life believing it was true and find out in the end you were lost. There are a lot of things people think the new birth is that it's not. It doesn't line up with Scripture. I mean, one... Asking Jesus into your heart is no assurance of being born again. In fact, asking Jesus into the heart, it's not found anywhere in Scripture. Anywhere. It's, it's popular, yes. Various reasons. I mean, one reason, it allows men to still think they're in control, even control over God. Right? It says, man decides whether or not I'm going to be born again. I decide. It's the opposite of what Jesus says. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. You, you just don't decide as the determining factor one day to follow Jesus and thus be born again. It can't work that way. You can't even see the gates of the kingdom to decide to go through them until 
born again happens to you. Doing good things. There's no assurance of having received the new birth. There are a lot of people who do good things for their fellow man and are going to die and go to hell. All kinds, Muslims and Mormons and atheists, they abstain from sexual immorality. They don't steal. They try not to lie. They control their lust. They practice self-control and generosity. But we know they don't have the new birth. And so being moral or turning over a new leaf, that's no guarantee of being born again. And finally, being religious. No assurance of having the new birth. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. These guys were the most religious people, maybe, who have ever lived. They studied their Bibles ceaselessly. They prayed constantly. They gave generously of time and money, fasted twice a week. They were in the synagogue every time the doors were open, and they were the ones leading the services. If you had questions about the Scripture, guess who you went to? These guys. Everyone looked up to them as examples of what it meant to be obedient to God. And Jesus tells these people, how will you escape being condemned to hell? You will not see the kingdom unless you are born again. They are dead. So don't think that going to church or reading your Bible or praying or generosity or knowing a lot of information or any of the good things like that that you do, the religious things, that's not proof of being born again. You have to go deeper than that. But what do all of these things have in common? There's one thing they all have in common. Do you know what it is? They still depend on what man is capable of doing. A man can make a decision. Man can turn over a new leaf. Man can be religious. But assurance of the new birth does not come from what you do. It comes from what God has done to you. He makes you a new creature. That's how you know you've been born again. God's Spirit has regenerated you and made you into something you never used to be. So you don't say, I am deciding to follow Jesus. You, you might say that. But you say, I will follow Jesus because there, there's no longer any decision to be made. You're new. You want new things. Christ is beautiful to you. You're, you're going to follow Him. And don't see how you could not. It's not a question anymore. And you don't do the right things because, well, they're just the right things to do, but you actually want to do them. And you pass over from being a moralist to, to being a Christian. What do you mean? I, I mean you don't do the right things. You want to do the right things. And you don't just want to do the right things. You want to do them according to the Word. Lots of people do what they think are good deeds, and they're actually wicked deeds. We want to do what is right according to the Word. When you read the Bible and it says, live this way, you say, I will live this way. That's what God means when He says, I will write my law upon their hearts. And it's not being religious for the sake of being religious. You're religious for the sake of of knowing and loving Christ. Jonathan Edwards says, you have new affections. And a religion that is born out of new affections, a new love for Christ, is true religion. Well, let me give you an example from my own life. When I was younger, I was an unconverted church member. My Christianity was a burden to me. 
And even though I did almost everything, at least outwardly, that I was supposed to do, I did, went to church, did all of the right things, doing what was righteous was tedious. Prayer and the Bible were the furthest things from my mind. I knew I should read it. I knew I should pray. But it was always drowned out by the desire for other things. I had no love for God and I wanted nothing to do with Him. But if you looked at me, you would have never seen that. I went to church every Sunday and often begrudged it in my heart. I feigned prayer when necessary. And though I avoided almost all of the vice, I knew I should avoid. I wanted it. My heart was aimed at the world. I desired wicked things because I was not born again. I honored God in appearance only. I mean, to use the language from John's Gospel, I was a child of the devil. And apart from the work of the Spirit of God in your life, you are too. Now, does that story that I am very familiar with, does that resonate with any of you? Are the things of God a burden to you? Does your Christianity consist of giving up, listen, the wicked things you love in order to endure the righteous things you hate? You understand what I'm saying? Your Christianity is, I really want to do this bad thing, but I'm not going to because I'm a Christian. And this righteous thing, I really don't want to do it, no desire whatsoever to do what is right, but I'm going to do it because I'm a Christian. That's not Christianity. You haven't been born again because when you are born again, all things will be made new and your desires will be different. You'll be a new creature. The evil you once were drawn to will begin to become sickening to you. That doesn't mean it can't tempt you, but you'll see it as a temptation to be resisted, not an entertainment to indulge. The things of God, holiness, righteousness, the fellowship of believers... God Himself. They become precious to you. I mean, don't be deceived. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 Or James 4.4 Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you might look righteous, but where's your heart? What's your prayer life like? It's, it's naive to think you can love someone you never talk to. And what's your secret life like? Do you love him in the privacy of your home? Or are you only a public Christian? What would your wife and children say? Those who know you best. Or what would the Lord Christ say who sees the very depths of your heart and understands you better than you understand you? You must be born again. No one enters His kingdom otherwise. And listen, what's, what's, what's the kingdom of God about? Romans 14.17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about living by the Spirit in the Spirit. The kingdom of God isn't even primarily about your salvation. 
It's about the glory of God being manifest in your renewed life. That's why you were saved in the first place. To be a trophy of His grace and a renewed image of His likeness for the praise of His glory. In Ezekiel 36.22, a few verses earlier than what we read, He says He will act and pour out His Spirit for the sake of His name. He says, I am going to make Christians, people who believe in Me, different from the world around them so that when the world looks at them, they're not going to think that I am like the world. Or one that you're all familiar with, Psalm 23. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why does God do that? For His namesake. God saves you and makes you righteous so that you represent His name well in heart and in action. Because it's possible, Titus 1.16, to profess to know God, but deny Him by your works. Do you know Him? And do you love Him? If you love Him, you'll keep His commandments. John 14.15 Or 1 John 2.3-4 and 4. It couldn't be any clearer than this. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. Being born again means you are a new creature. One that no longer loves the world and is burdened by God, but loves God and loves the Word and submits joyfully, if not always quickly, to His ways. That's not my opinion. That's how the Bible describes those who are born again people. I mean, if you came to me and you said you were a medical doctor... And I discovered that you never received a degree, never took the MCAT, never went to medical school, never did a residency, never had a practice. Guess what? Two possibilities. Either you're a liar or you are deceived. You are either knowingly lying to me or unknowingly lying to yourself. The one thing the facts bear out is you are no doctor. And if someone claims to be a Christian and has no genuine love for God, no desire for righteousness, no concern to put sin to death or to bring their lives into conformity to the Word of God, I mean, it's certainly if they never read it or pray, then I am forced by biblical compulsion to conclude, if that's you, you must be born again. In all likelihood, you are dead in trespasses and sins. I remember I was, I was talking to a man and, uh, and I, had been, I had met with him a few times and I asked him, how is your spiritual life like? And he said, I'm doing really good. And I said, are you in the Word and in prayer? And he said, no, I can't remember the last time I prayed or was in the Bible. And so I asked him, if I were to ask you, how is your physical life going? And you said, it's going good. And I asked, well, when was the last time you ate and slept, or ate and drank, and you told me, well, I haven't eaten in six months, and I can't remember the last time I had a glass of water. I wouldn't believe you if you told me you were doing good. Because the only kind of people who can go six months without food or water are dead people that you find buried six feet under. And he said, I guess I see what you mean. 
People who can go without the food from heaven that nourishes the soul. The only way you can go months without being fed in your spirit is if you're spiritually dead. So what do you do? Well, you don't decide to let Jesus into your heart. And you don't decide to make some moral life changes. And you don't determine to become more religious. You humble yourself before God. And you confess your pride and confess your sin and confess your need and confess your hypocrisy. You know what the word confess means? It literally means to say the same as. And if you agree with God's judgment against you and go to Him for mercy, Lord, I humble myself before You. I thought I was walking with You. I'm not so sure. You will find mercy. And I sat down with a man once a few years ago and I was counseling him and his life was, uh, was a mess. Just sin had destroyed everything. And he thought he was a Christian. And at the end of our conversation, I told him, I have good news for you and I've got bad news for you. The bad news is this. Based on our conversation and everything that you've said, I don't think you are or ever were a Christian. But the good news is there is something out there called Christianity you know not of. And Christ will make a difference in your life. Now, I don't know whatever happened to that man, but I know his situation is not uncommon. If that sounds like you, well, believe the bad news so the good news can become a reality in your life. This isn't getting things straightened out. It's not turning over a new leaf. It isn't getting back to church and starting to live right. It is pleading with Christ to save you. It's Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's Luke 18. Lord, have mercy on a sinner like me. It's forsaking yourself and putting your hope and trust in Jesus Christ because though we are helpless, we are never without hope. Jesus tells us the only place where this regenerating, life-changing power can be found It's only eight verses later. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. There's only one kingdom, one way, one door, one salvation. And to see it, let alone enter in, you must be born again. Well, let's pray. Lord, You are the searcher of hearts. You know the end from the beginning. You know us better than we know us. And Lord, You know who are Yours. And I pray, Lord, that if You have been working conviction into people this morning, that Lord, You would bring that conviction to a glorious salvation that the chains of deception would be shattered and that men and women would cry out, Hallelujah! The meager, weak, so-called Christianity they thought they had is put to death and they know true joy and true love and true life in Christ. That they would repent and find, Lord, You fully and finally Lord, 
It's like cisterns that can hold no water. And whenever we go to, to take a scoop, it's just mud and there's no life. You came so that we would have life. And I pray, Lord, I don't know the hearts of anyone here, but You do. You do. And I pray, God, that You would show our hearts to ourselves. Cut through the deceptions, God. Shed light into the dark places of our hearts, Lord. I pray there wouldn't be anyone here like I was content to be religious and lost. Content to love the world. Lord, You are so merciful to me. You are a forgiving and merciful God. Whoever comes to You, Lord, maybe they're just tired of righteousness being a burden. Lord, Your burden is light and Your yoke is easy and I pray they would find it. It's in Your name we pray because it's You alone who can breathe new life into the heart of a man or a woman or a child. Do Your work, God. This is in Your hands. I commit these people to You. Amen.